Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. All right. It's good to be here. Good to be ministering um, the Word. And I have uh, uh, want to uh, tap into some examples, some illustrations from the life of Elijah, uh, one of the greatest prophets in all of Scripture. <clears throat> and as uh, Kathy so aptly described, this series is about considering the life and um, outcome of biblical individuals so that our lives can be transformed. Um, but be- before we go to that, <clears throat> um, there's a quote from um, another Christian. His name was Blaise Pascal. Anyone ever heard of Blaise Pascal before? Eh, six or seven of us. <clears throat> So he was a 17th century uh, mathematician. Uh, Have you ever used a calculator? He invented one of the first mechanical calculators. I have no idea how a mechanical calculator would possibly work. Not that I know how an electric calculator works. (laughs) But uh, he also invented, uh, he was one of the, he laid the foundation uh, for the mathematics of probability. So we can thank Blaise Pascal for the insurance industry. (laughs) Anyway, he said this. He said, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Well, he also said another quote that he's a little more famous for, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man and woman. This guy is a pretty smart guy. And so you have to take what he says and consider it. And all of humanity's, or let's just say a significant portion of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Is Is that true of you? Is it true of myself? How well can we just sit quietly without turning to some distraction? How long can we be at peace or still, even alone in a room? How long does it take before our minds go to something else? to occupy our thoughts. This chart's a a few years old, but I'm sure the the percentages are about the same. You know that the average American spends over five hours a day looking at their personal electronic device. It's not really a phone anymore, is it? It's like the least used function. (laughs) (laughs) is actually talking on a phone. Some people don't know you can talk on them. (laughs) Right? Five and a half hours. Oh, that can't be true of me. This morning, my phone has this feature that I can't figure out how to turn off (laughs) that tells me once a week my average time on my phone per day. 
And it just happened to tell me this morning that I averaged 4.2 hours a day looking at this. Now, to justify myself, the second most use was maps. Because I use it to navigate, right? But above that was that other thing called social media. Uh, and other things. So we turn it, and, and they break it down in this chart to uh, millennials and, and boomers. Uh, I would be the youngest of the boomer or the oldest of the millennial, right in between, actually. And, uh, <clears throat> and then you have Gen Z, and you have all the other things. The, the bottom line is, it doesn't really matter. You can see that it's about the same. Uh, uh, and younger people tend to spend a little bit more, uh, 5.7 hours for the millennials in this study, uh, but boomers... Uh, which old folks was still five hours or more. Um, 13% of millennials and younger and 5% of boomers say they spend over 12 hours a day. 12 hours a day interacting with their phone. All right. Now, before you blame the phone or social media, let me tell you something from ancient history. Back in the last century, I happen to have lived... Before the advent of the internet, before you could carry a computer, literally, (laughs) there were other things called newspapers, magazines, uh, uh, mass novels, mass distribution novels are named for it. Remember romance novels? There were giant racks in every grocery store of all these romance novels. And, And, you know, there was always something else that they would, and you can look at pictures from the 30s and 40s of men hiding behind their newspapers in the same way that we hide now behind our phones, all right? So it's not the technology that's the problem. It's something in us and that we, we crave distraction because we're unsettled with reality or with ourselves. And that's the idea that Blaise Pascal was getting at in his statement uh, that we need something to fill what we perceive and what is the void. It is the void that he, the other quote that he's famous for addresses, that we don't fill it with God and his presence and the knowledge of the, the eternal. We fill it with something else. And so we're always looking and it drives us and it causes strife and stress. Now, Psalm 46 is filled with... Uh, if you read it, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's a, a, a powerful psalm. And it actually starts out with all kinds of noisy stuff. It says, uh, <clears throat> though the earth be removed, like the whole earth, like physically, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, what would that look like? What would that sound like? Okay. Get beyond the fact that, okay, it's probably a poetic illustration, but you know what? That actually does happen. And, and, and if we understand some biblical prophecies, that might happen on a massive global scale. Though the mountains be carried into the sea, though the waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with swelling, Selah. He says, think about that. Think about all of the uh, 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 tragedy and upheaval that's happening in our world 
And then verse 10 of Psalm 46 says, the next verse, be still, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. The command in verse 6 is be still. And the result of following that command is the ability to know God. So if you're unable to be still, you are unable to know God, at least in the fullest sense. There's, there's an aspect of knowing God that can only be learned through stillness in the midst of turmoil. When the mountains are shaking and the sea is roaring and you can be still, that positions you to gain a knowledge, an understanding of God that if you turn to distractions or comforts or isolation, you will not be able to know God. The word be still in Hebrew there means to cease. Stop! Stop what? Whatever you're doing! The root word, it comes from a root word that means to mend or to cure. And this is true both of a spiritual, mental, and physical illness, right? Often we need to just stop. You break your arm, what do they do? Huh? After they set it? They put it in a cast. Why? So it doesn't move for a long time. All right? You have an operation, you got to lay in bed. <clears throat> I had a heart catheter because I had a heart attack. It's not a pleasant procedure. Thankfully, I didn't need open heart surgery. <clears throat> but after the catheter, <laughs> how long is it, Kathy? I had to lay... Huh? Had to lay still on my back for six hours. All right, I couldn't. I couldn't lift my arm. Right, if you know me, I'm never still. Not even when I'm asleep. Okay, I'm always moving. That was one of the most excruciating experiences of my life, and I had to have it done twice within three days. Oh. <laughs> The heart attack was better. <laughs> Sometimes the cure is more painful than the, than, the, than the illness. Did you know that? Sometimes being still is more painful than being distracted with all the stuff of life. But we need it to know God. Uh, and so if, if this is so important, if being still is so essential to knowing God, guess what? God will at times allow things, and actually design things to force us to quit, to stay still, to be quiet. He certainly did it with the prophet Elijah. 
So we're going <clears> to <throat> turn to 1 Kings 17. I'm going to read from uh, verse 1 through 7. But I'm going to jump around. <clears throat> and I have, I have two whole weeks. We will take a few breaks. <laughs> so this is a two-part message. Uh-huh. And there's uh, several lessons. Oh, there we go that we can learn from the life of Elijah. And that's what we want to do. And the first lesson is the lesson of offense. Everyone say offense. Well, are we talking like a barbed wire or or privacy? Huh? Electric fence. No, offense. As in O-F-F-E-N-S-E, being offended. The lesson of offense, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. Interesting thing about this guy, Elijah. We really have no idea who he is. Really. Some uh, scholars think that that was actually a title, not his name. Uh, There's no genealogy, doesn't say anything how he became a prophet. He just, boom, shows up on the scene. He's Elijah, and he's the greatest prophet of all time. Uh, He steps in to respond to idolatry and uh, uh, wickedness in the nation of Israel at a time when it was desperately needed. So he was uh, a Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. He went to the king, King Ahab, who was the king of Israel. This was after uh, David and Solomon and, and, and their descendants and the, and the nation of Israel, which was at one point one under David and Solomon, had divided. The northern kingdom is what's called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Judah. <clears throat> All right. Those became the two primary kingdoms. Israel eventually fell and was actually eliminated. Judah remains. That's why we now call the descendants of Abraham Jews as a shortened verse, version of Judah. Did you know that? <clears throat> Jews. Uh, even though they're not all of the tribe of Judah, that includes all of the tribes. But he was sent to Ahab, the current king of Israel, to prophesy and to confront Ahab who had been doing a uh, horrible, sinful, uh, and uh, practicing idolatry, uh, married as, as a way to form a political alliance, a woman whose name was Jezebel, uh, quite well known also in Scripture for being rather wicked and uh, doing evil things, <clears throat> and bringing the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth into the nation of Israel. And Uh, Elijah says, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, get away from here. So after he'd prophesied to Ahab, then God told Elijah, get away and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed at the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. 
And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Well, it's interesting that he prophesied and the Lord led him to prophesy that there would be no rain because Baal was the Canaanite god of rain and dew. And so this was a clear confrontation of the um, spiritual demonic stronghold that was uh, over Israel and affecting that nation. He stood up and prophesied against uh, the, 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 the primary demonic force that was at work in his nation. But then he had to run away and hide. And that took a toll on Elijah. Uh, it was difficult for him to stand up. How, how many of you can tap into this? Come on, be honest. When's the last time you talked to someone that was a non-Christian, maybe someone that you work with or someone that you know, that you know that they're not serving Jesus and, and, you, and you want to share something of uh, the gospel? Do you feel like that difficulty? Here he went to the king who had the authority and power and means to chop his head off. And he spoke to him and confronted. Not only that, but he was addressing the spiritual principalities and powers behind what that king represented. Okay? So he was pushing in, and that had an effect. He had to get out of there. God knew it. And he sends him and says, I'll feed you with the ravens. Now, if you've heard this story, you've probably thought, Wow, wouldn't that be cool? Go camping in the mountains and have, have God bring, you know, God like invented Uber Eats. <laughs> Seriously, uh, Raven Eats. Yeah. yeah. Can you picture it like a raven flying in and, and delivering food every day? Probably like Chick-fil-A. <laughs> you know, you'd open up the bag. And like, oh, I love those fries. Except on Sunday, Chick-fil-A's closed. So he probably brought Wendy's. Sounds really cool, but you know what? Have you ever met a raven? I have. They are nasty birds. Okay? How many know crows? Corvids, right? They're cool birds. Caw, caw. One of the most intelligent birds that live. Really, it's one of the most intelligent species, corvids, crows. <clears throat> they communicate to one another. They can, they, they can learn. They use tools. Uh, uh, they're just amazing. I've studied them my whole life because I lived out in the country. They're amazing birds. But ravens, ravens are like their odd, ornery, weird uncle. <laughs> Seriously, they're related. But ravens are like four times bigger. Ravens don't go, caw. You know what ravens do? Never more. No, never more? There's a joke there just went right over my head. First time I heard a raven, I was camping up in the Upper Peninsula, and in the early morning, I heard this. Jeez, what is a pterodactyl? And it was a couple of ravens raiding the dumpster. <laughs> Crows uh, live in societies. Ravens, at most, will have one or two other, and they're usually just during the mating season. 
They're loners. <coughs> they're obnoxious. They're loud. And you know what they eat? Roadkill. So it's possible God somehow <coughs> taught a raven how to carry something, but it's unlikely. This is probably what it looked like. This is an adult raven, two adult ravens, feeding their adolescent uh, immature uh, fledgling, which is the bigger one because it's still losing its baby feathers. I don't know what it's called. So the bigger one is actually the, the younger one, and the smaller ones are actually the parents feeding it. Um, <clears throat> this is what ravens feeding someone looks like. don't eat live meat. Very... You want more, Elijah? You see that little slobber? Oh, yeah. Oh! It's so... It's so meaningful. Thank you. <laughs> Coming back, second course. All of a sudden, that doesn't sound so pleasant, does it? It's disgusting. Uh, ravens were unclean animals. They ate unclean food. Now, one thing to understand, uh, touching something unclean was not sin. It just made you unclean. And therefore, it was culturally and religiously offensive. For Elijah to receive food from the ravens. But God chose something offensive to feed him for a significant period of time. Why? Why didn't God, it's funny you mentioned chicken, because in my sermon I said, why didn't God just send a chicken, a hen, lay several eggs a day? You can eat and live on several eggs a day. It's like the perfect food, right? Why didn't he send quail? He sent quail to the Israelites. Quails are clean birds. He sent a raven. It's unclean. And it ate unclean food. But that was God's choice to provide to the prophet. 
At times, God provides through means that provoke us and confront our sensitivities. Did you hear me? God's provision comes through an avenue or a means or a method that actually provoke you, that upset you, that offend you. And you know what? God's trying to get to something in you. Because if you're offended by something, that's not about the something, that's about what's in you. God required the prophet to eat it. Not only to eat it, but be sustained from it. This is what I learned from this, and I think it's an important lesson. I don't have any room to carry offense. I don't have enough energy to be offended at someone. All right? Because offense is, it's a burden. If Elijah says, I'm not going to touch that food from that raven, he would be missing a lesson that God was trying to teach him. That God can actually use something that's offensive, that's actually unclean, to sustain you. Because there was something in Elijah that had to be changed or transformed. Think of it another way. Jesus Christ, sinless, right? All right? Perfectly pure. I'm not sinless. Are you sinless? Have you ever been in a place around someone that made you feel yucky? Because of their lifestyle or the environment? You know, it's different for everyone. But certain certain locales, like not long ago, I was, I happened to go to, uh, I was in a different town and I had to get something to eat. and And the only place was this really dive bar. Like, it was nasty inside, you know? But, you know, it's like that, or you don't eat. Uh, And the people were were doing things that make me uncomfortable. You just pick up on that. Think about Jesus. When he walked amongst the people, he felt the, the uncleanness of everyone in a way that we can't even imagine. How did he treat them? He knelt down, got on their level. He touched the lepers and the adulterers. He spoke to those who he wasn't even supposed to speak to according to the rules of their culture. He didn't get offended by uncleanness because he had something in him that was able to transform, something more powerful. Are you getting this? All right. So what's offensive in your life that maybe God's trying to get to something in you to change you? Uh, what are you reacting to that you should be responding to? What situation or person in your life that you just want to get away from, but God's actually positioned you to be an influence in their life or in that situation? And he's calling you to be the prophet in the midst of an unclean generation. And not to run and hide from it, but to walk right up to it and hug it and smell the odors of their indiscretions 
and feel the creepy crawlies of their sin. I'm going to jump to lesson number two because I took too long for that first one. <clears throat> lesson number two is jump down a few verses or a few chapters. 1 Kings 17, 8 through 16. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, oh, by the way, God did give him clean water. The brook of Cherith. Aren't you happy that he, he had something that he could wash down that raven vomit? But then the brook dried up. What, what the heck? God sent him somewhere, gave him something, and then it ran out. Sometimes what you go to for refreshment and restoration dries up. And it's time to move on. That's God saying it's time to move on. You need to, what, what, what satisfied your need then won't in the future. And there was another lesson for him to learn. I call it the lesson of humility in uh, chapter 17, verse 8 through 16. The word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to a town, starts with Z, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he rose and went to Zarephath or something like that. And when he got to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called her and said, um, could, you, could you bring me a morsel of bread? <laughs> Can you imagine what he was thinking? An actual slice of bread. Please. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour and a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Whoa. Why were they going to die? Why was there a drought? Huh? Pardon me? Someone said it. So this woman and her kid was going to die as a result of his prophecy. And he was asking her for her last portion of food. Elijah said, don't fear. Go and do as you have said, but make a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterwards, make some for yourself and your son. Do you see the audacity in that? What is he, some kind of prosperity preacher? <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Pastor. I, I, I you know, I really want to. Help, I really want to help church, but we just don't have enough money to. To, 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 you know, to tithe. I mean, wow. I mean, we barely, we, we're not even paying our bills. You, you, how much money do you have in your account? $100? Great. How much is your tithe? Tithe would be 80 Okay. You pay the tithe first. And God will provide. How many would be mad at that pastor? You know, I've been, I was a pastor for 30, I am a pastor. 
I'll tell you what, I'm so happy I'm not the senior pastor anymore. <laughs> Serious, it's like glory. All right. I can say this now because <clears throat> I'm not the senior pastor. <clears throat> it is gut-wrenchingly sickening to tell someone that. To get up here and ask for you to donate to this ministry. It is humiliating. I live, I tell people this all the time, they think I'm joking. I live by handouts. I just happen to be really good at it. I see guys on the street asking for money. I was like, dude, you need to up your game. <laughs> I've actually said this, okay. I'm like, listen, I mean, you see this car? Yeah, nice car. I got four kids, nice house, you know, motorcycle. I, I do the same thing you do. But it's still humiliating. I don't want to ask people for money. It's humiliating to ask for money. You know what? And that's a lesson. I teach pastors now, and this is one of the things I say, so especially senior leaders. <clears throat> Number, one of the top responsibilities of a senior leader of any ministry is to raise money. If you don't like that, get another job. I say that every time I do the ministry schools that I do all over the world. Now, you're on the other end of this, all right? So I'm telling you, this is not something we like to do, but it's something that God requires. Because on the other side of that is a miraculous provision. But you know, when Elijah said that, he didn't really know. He was just drinking from a brook that dried up. So he had to do that out of obedience. And humiliate himself saying, you know what, woman? Before you feed yourself and your kid, a widow, give me the first portion. But look at what happens. His promise says, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. Make a cake for me first and bring it to me. And afterwards, make some for yourself and your son. For the Lord God of Israel says, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. What an act of faith. And that's the same act that you are called to do every time you choose to pay your tithes and offerings first, and then you do your bills. All right? It's the same act of faith. I don't know. God knows what you do. She went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Wow! The, the miraculous provision was on the other side of two things. The prophet humiliating himself and speaking the word of the Lord, even though it was uncomfortable and, 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 and difficult. And the widow choosing, she didn't have to do that. She could have said, you no good prophet, you just want something for yourself. I'm not going to give that to you. What would have happened if she'd done that? She would have had a little cake and died. 
And Elijah would have been provided in some other way. All right? But she did it. Your provision is on the other side of obedience. Okay? And you may not be a minister asking for donations, but there's a point in your life where you need to humble yourself. All right? And face what is humiliating to follow the word of the Lord and what God's telling you to do. We need to be willing to be humbled in order to see God's miraculous provision. And God provides rarely through the person or means that we think he will. It's almost always through an unseen or unthought of avenue that God meets the need that you have. But you will not see that provision unless you are obedient to the word of the Lord. And you don't have to wait for some preacher, and we're really careful about this here. We don't push that on you. We make it really easy. We, we soft sell. We give you the opportunity to give. Well, read the Bible. God's a little more direct. Okay? It's there. Read the word of the Lord. And realize it's for your benefit. It's always for your benefit. It's for our benefit that God calls us to do things that are radical, things that are counterintuitive, things that position us. I was with, uh, talking to a pastor just uh, uh, last week, last week, within the last two weeks, and he had to make this incredibly huge decision that would affect his entire congregation, his entire life. It was massive, and he was asking me for advice. And I was like, well, tell you what I got. I said, you know, Christians are and pastors are inherently risk averse. We don't like to take risks. Yet we follow a Lord (laughs) that calls us to go out like sheep among the wolves, right? to walk on water, to heal the sick, just go out and do the impossible. Raise the dead. Open blind eyes. Everything Jesus tells us to do and the gospel account there, it's like, go do the impossible. What impossible thing have you tried today? This week? This last month? See, if you don't try it, you'll never see it happen. Right? And sometimes you have to trust by taking the step. And I told this guy, do it. Go for it. Make that commitment. Because <clears throat> if he doesn't make the commitment to do something extreme, he'll never see God's provision. It's not about the building or the money. It's about your heart. It's not about the... The issues are all secondary. What God is after is a transformation of our heart so that we understand how to rely and how to receive on God by faith that is beyond what we're able to see in the natural. Okay? But you you have to take steps to do that. You actually have to overcome offense. You have to be willing to be humbled and humiliated, and to be uh, laughed at, 
to be scoffed at, to be ignored, and yet still stay humble and open and, and willing to give and to ask and to receive. Does that make sense? It's difficult in this culture. This culture, we're in a day where, we're in a day where the culture is in a free fall because it's lost all of its moral uh, 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 roots. It's, uh, 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 what do they call those? Huh? Huh? Anchors, roots, moorings. Everything that moored, that stabilized a culture's ethics, even our understanding of ourselves, it's, there's a free fall. Because people have cut the lines that tied the, the ship to the, 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 the dock, and it's in the... And so the, 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 the oceans are raging and the mountains are being cast into the sea. And how can we be the voice of God if we're not still? Elijah was able to face that. Say, hey, bake me a cake first. <laughs> she did. And her life and her son's life was miraculously sustained. Next week, we're going to look at two other lessons from Elijah's life and see what we can learn from that. Kathy, would you come and close this message? Yeah, so I just want us to take a moment um, and just think about just those two things. Um, So would you guys just take a posture of being quiet, close your eyes so that you're not distracted. Um, And the first question that I want you to ask yourself or ask the Lord, what offense do I need to let go of so that my heart can be changed? Now that might require you repenting to someone. It might require you forgiving someone. Think about the last argument you had. Are you still holding on to something that you need to let go of? And the second question I want you to ask yourself is, what is God asking you to do in humility? Your pride may stop you from. With those two things in mind, maybe you should write them down and spend some time being still with the Lord. I'd encourage you to do that today, but right now I just want to pray. Father, I'm just so grateful that you give us um, just the people in the Bible who are real people, who experienced real troubles. 
And you gave us this written document so that we could learn how to become more like you, Jesus. Help us to understand what you're calling us to do. That we would be people that would lay down a fence. We wouldn't carry those with us. That our hearts could be changed. That we would become more like you. And that we would walk humbly amongst a very proud generation. <laughs> There's anything that's... Uh, that would signify the USA, it would be pride. And so we just ask for a humility and that when we run, we would run into your arms, Lord. Just thank you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.